How's everybody doing? Good. Everyone made it through the New Year's. Hey, just for a second, um, I know it's always hard because of time. Can you just turn around and say hi to someone maybe that you don't know? There you go. I just kind of like watching you guys do that. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun to see the extroverts and introverts kind of like, you know, like you can pick them out from, from my vantage point. Oh, you know, the ones that stand up, you're like, oh, there's our extroverts. So, um, okay, great, great. Uh, glad you guys are here today. Um, I was joking around at the Saturday services. Does anyone watch New Year's Rock and Eve besides my wife and I? Uh, it's terrible every single year, but we watch it every single year. And every single year I buy a new, <laughs> I buy a new antenna for the TV and spend like 40 bucks on it. And then I get rid of it saying that I'll never watch New Year's Rock and Eve again. And then every year I buy another antenna and I'm like, nope, there's Fergie again. And I don't know why I spent the money to buy it. Anyways, none of that has anything to do with anything. So we're doing the book of Daniel. Um, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Hey, I'm just going to be up front with you guys, and there's, there, there might be a lot of new people here this weekend because it's the beginning of a new year, and, and the church typically grows a lot in the first uh, you know, month of the year. But we've been going through the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel has been extremely interesting to me. Uh, it's done a lot to me. Now, it's a book of the Bible that was written about 2,600 years ago, long time ago, right? 26 centuries ago. And it's, it's fascinating to me to see how relevant this text is being as old as it is. Now, chapter 9, it's interesting because people come up a lot and they'll say, man, wow, what you talked about last week, it's exactly what I needed to hear. And what's interesting and, 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 and fascinating about that is that I know what I'm going to teach on usually a year in advance. Like in the next couple of weeks, our team will get together and we will lay out the entire year of what I'm going to teach. And so I knew I was going to teach Daniel chapter 9 right now for a long time, about a year now that I've known that. And what's fascinating, again, is that the book is always relevant and it always comes up exactly uh, when it's supposed to. And chapter 9 that we're going to cover today is just, it's amazing that it fell as the, on the first weekend of a new year, and you'll see why here in a second. If you haven't been here, though, the, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this guy, Daniel, who's now an aging prophet, uh, basically a guy that God has given visions and dreams to that tells the future. This guy's probably in his mid to late 80s. In chapter 7, he received a vision about the very end of time. In chapter 8, he received a vision about a couple of centuries in the future, what was going to happen, and that foreshadows the very, very end of time. And, and then in chapter 9, he's going to basically, all we're going to cover today is a prayer that Daniel has. And it's about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem, the restoration of God's people and then the restoration of God's reputation. That's essentially what this prayer is about, those three things, okay? And from that, what we see is that God's biggest concern or Christianity's biggest concern should be these three things. It should be our cities, our hometowns. It should be our church family, that's you and I in here. And it should be our reputation to the people outside of our church family, that we should live our lives in such a way to where God has a good reputation with non-believers, even if they don't believe, okay? And so today is a very, very interesting lesson 
to start off the new year. And it's a prayer, and it's something that we need to be talking about more and more, how to pray, how to approach God, what to ask God for, and what to do as Christians in our city. So we're going to dive into this today. I hope you guys like it. Um, I'm going to come off a little preachy today. If you just started coming to the church, just just be gracious with me. You know, maybe ask the person next to you, have you been coming here for a while? Is Corey always a jerk? And, and hopefully they'll say no to that. And then you'll have, you know, you can keep coming back a little bit and, and, and trying this whole thing out. But uh, I may get a little passionate today and uh, forgive me. Some of that is because I'm not feeling very well and some of it is I'm just kind of in my, my funk already. I know that the fast is starting soon. So I'm ramping up my, my bad attitude for when I fast coffee for 40 days. So... Um, if you've ever wanted to work at the church, you don't at the beginning of every new year because I'm an awful person to work with. So let me pray and, uh, <laughs> and we'll get into chapter 9 and, and we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Glad you guys are here. Glad everyone's here, okay? We'll see where God takes us, all right? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I just want to thank you for everyone in this room. Father, there are people in this room, God that you've given me such the honor to get to know and people that I see around town and, and I get to see them and, and shake their hands and give them hugs. And I just thank you for this body of believers, Lord. Thank you for the services last night. Thank you, God, for the services that we're going to have today. God, keep your hand on us, Lord. Um, thicken up our skin this morning. Help us, God, to look at your word objectively. Help us to be honest with ourselves. God, we pray for every church in our town. Lord, this is not about the experienced community. It is about your kingdom. And we pray that your kingdom is advanced through the bigger churches and smaller churches and the, the churches that, that worship differently from us. God, we don't care as long as your kingdom is advanced. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you, God. I pray, Lord, that every word I say today is, uh, brings you honor and that it reflects your heart, God. Lord, help me to be wise today as I teach, Lord, and open up our ears and our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, book of Daniel's right after the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. If you don't have a notes handout, if you have the Version app, it's on there as well. Click on the bottom right and our church will pop up and pretty fancy, okay? I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down. Again, be gracious with me today, okay? All right, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter 9. Here we go. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth who was ruler over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the number of the years of desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now here starts the prayer, okay? Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from Your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all of the people in the land." Now, if you haven't been with us, one of the most important elements of the book of Daniel is that Daniel sets up chronologically where in history he was receiving these things from God and when these events took place. Now, this takes place during the first year of Darius. Now, if you weren't with us during chapters 5 and 6, the Babylonian Empire, right, 
It came into power. It, it went in and conquered most of the world, and that's how uh, Daniel ended up in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was here. They were conquered by the Persians, and the first leader of the Persian Empire was a guy named Darius. And so Darius, who was, a, who was actually a, a Mede, that was his bloodline, was the first leader of this empire. And so that's when this prayer took place. At this point, the city of Jerusalem, that is Daniel's hometown, that's important to remember, the city of Jerusalem, Daniel's hometown, had been in ruins for about 50 years. So it was just demolished for about 50 years, okay, which is also kind of important to remember. Now, Daniel was going back and he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And in the prophet Jeremiah's writings, it talks about Babylon coming in laying out Jerusalem, you know, laying Jerusalem in ruins. It talks about that. And then it says in Jeremiah, though, that that will only last for 70 years. So Daniel is reading this, the prophet Jeremiah, and he's like, okay, there's this 70 years where my hometown is going to be completely wrecked. And he's curious, when is this going to end? When is my hometown going to be built back? And so as he's reading Jeremiah, Notice that he takes Jeremiah as the Word of God. The reason why he takes Jeremiah as the Word of God is because all the things that Jeremiah said would happen, happened. If you want to know how one is a prophet or not, it's pretty simple. If what they say comes true. So, it's easy to make predictions. It's hard to stick around and see if they come to fruition or not. And Jeremiah's predictions came true. So, it was the Word of God. Daniel also trusted God's timing. Now, put yourself in his shoes. Not only had his people been conquered once, now they were conquered by another group of people, the Persians, who were extremely controlling. So that was kind of like a setback. Not only that, he didn't know exactly when the 70 years started. So he's waiting for the 70 years to come to an end, but he doesn't even really know the official start date of this 70-year time. So it would have been easy for Daniel to doubt God. God, what's going on? When is this time going to be done? When is my hometown going to be rebuilt? So what he did, instead of like tweeting about how bad everything was, instead of complaining, and instead of, of, of running to the bottle or running to sex or drugs or whatever the case may be, Daniel did what all believers should do, and he went to God through prayer and petition. He went to him saying, God, we need to talk because I don't understand what's going on. Can you help me with this? And so he wanted to get clarity from God. Now, what we see is something extremely interesting. Daniel first went to the Word of God for answers, and the Word of God led him to pray, and then praying led him back to the Word of God. It's this circle that all Christians should go through. And it's not just something for ministers or pastors or small group leaders or children's authors or something. It's not, an, it's not just for them. It's for all Christians. We should be in this cycle. We read the Word. We pray. We get confirmation from the Word that God has given us through, through reading the Bible. And we go through this cycle. That's what all Christians should be doing. And when we're in that cycle of reading the Word and praying and getting confirmation from God... I don't know any of you who've read the Bible and have a prayer life, the words of this page come alive. We start to see the relevance of a book like the book of Daniel written 2,600 years ago. We start to see, oh my gosh, look, this still works. These principles still work. And the Bible becomes alive, but it takes prayer and it takes reading. 
And so we see how Daniel approaches God. This is so important. Daniel did not approach God with arrogance. He did not approach God commanding God what to do. It is the height of arrogance to think that we can approach the throne of God and say, God, you need to do this, 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 and this. You owe me this, 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 and this. In case we forget, God is the author and finisher of everything. He already wrote the story. He created the solar system. He created us. He created the stratosphere and the atmosphere that keep our air on planet Earth for us to breathe. And we need to have the focus or we need to have the mindset that we are owed nothing from God. And so Daniel approached God with humility and he fasted and he set aside luxuries, not so he could lose weight at the beginning of the year. That's not why we fast. He fasted so he could focus himself more on God and he could talk to God. We also have seen in the past, if you've been with us, that Daniel has a consistent prayer life and he lives righteously. These are two things that we must have in order to communicate with God, not just to talk to Him, but to live the way God wants us to live. And when we live the way God wants us to live, it opens up communication between us and our Heavenly Father. So what we're going to see, starting in verse 4, is one of the most famous, it's actually one of the longest too, but one of the most famous prayers in the entire Bible. It starts a great prayer, and he starts off with confession. Not just confessing for himself, he's actually going to confess for the sins of an entire people. What he does, Daniel, and this is something worth taking note of, he refuses to separate himself from his people. What I mean by that is when he prays, he says, God, forgive us. We've done this. We have made mistakes. He's not so pretentious or or arrogant to where he says, oh, all these other sinners, right? They've done all these bad things. Forgive them, God. He says, no, 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 I've been a part of it too. I've rebelled too. I've acted wickedly too. So he takes responsibility for his people. He takes responsibility for other believers. And he says, God, it's our fault. You didn't do anything wrong. You're perfect. We are the ones that made the mistake. Now look, primarily you and I confess to God because he's God. But when we've sinned against other people, we are also to repent to other people. There are times when I ask other people for their forgiveness. We should do that. And Daniel here very clearly gives us insight on why his people were in the position they were. Now look, it's bad theology to think that bad things happen to you because you're you're bad. It says in the Bible that, that, that God reigns on the just and the unjust. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. But when Daniel was praying, he was talking about a collective group of people, a nation. And he said the reason why this nation or this group of individuals is in the position they are in, he says it's because they've sinned collectively, they've acted wickedly, they've done wrong, they've rebelled, and they've turned away from God's commands. Do you guys start to see where the relevance is playing into this? An entire nation was in a bad spot because as a whole, they had turned their back on God. And they were in a spot that was rough. And Daniel's saying, we're only here because we have put ourselves here. We're only here because we have rebelled against God. And he says it's not just the upper 1% that got us here. We like to point at everyone else except for us, don't we? It was the top one. It wasn't just the top 1%. It wasn't just the rich that messed up. It wasn't just the politicians or the religious leaders. It was everybody. All these people had turned their back on God. 
You know, it's funny, the same Christians that say that top 1% are so greedy, they're the same ones who have envy in their heart, which is also a sin. And so we tend to point at everyone else except for us. And Daniel makes it clear, no, 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 it's all of us, all of us, all of us have fallen short, all of us rebelled against God, all of us have done the wrong thing. And what he's reminding us in the first part of this prayer is that a relationship with God is exactly that, or at least it should be a relationship. God has a conditional covenant. I'm going to step on some of your theological toes here in a second. God has a conditional covenant with His people, and it's essentially this. It's an if-then clause. The if-then clause that I'm going to show you here in a second from Romans chapter 10 is that if we call on His name, then we will be saved, right? If we have a relationship with God, we will be saved. In other words, we cannot expect a healthy marriage with our husband unless we communicate. That makes sense, right? You guys are smart people. Like, you can't have a good, healthy marriage. It's like, you know, you put the ring on, you're just like, I do, I do, and you're like, all right, see you when we die. That's not, that's not the way a marriage works. You communicate. Now, what we've done with God, though, is we've been that foolish. Now, here's what most people do. There are certain denominations that I will not say the name of because that's not, you know, that's not a very edifying thing, but you can put two and two together. A lot of denominations read chapter 9 of verse… Uh, they read… Uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 9 of Romans, and they stop there. And what they do is they say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you're saved. Hey, it's okay that my son deals drugs. When he was 12 years old, he said he believed Jesus. He accepted Him into his heart. He's good. doesn't matter what he does. Now, that is not theologically sound. And let me show you why from the Bible. Because it goes on, there's more verses after chapter 9. It says, if you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, one believes with the heart, it results in righteousness. What means if you believe the way you say you believe, you will live differently. So if one says to me, man, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, which is nowhere in the Bible, I accepted Him as that. I did this Lord's Prayer thing that we made up 30 years ago, right? I did that. That is incomplete. If you truly believe in Christ, if you truly understand the cross, you will not live the same way because that's what the Bible says. If you believe, it results in righteousness. And when you believe it results in righteousness, you confess more with your mouth, which results in more people being saved. There's this process, there's this relationship that goes on until the day we drop dead or the Lord comes back. It's not a one and done thing with Christ. That's not the way it works. And so we have not built a relationship. It's those who continually call, not those who have called on the name of the Lord, but those who consistently call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Next part. It says, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have dispersed them because of the disloyalty they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. 
Though we have rebelled against Him and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to follow His instructions that, that He set before us through His servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. He carried out His words that He spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing that has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not appeased the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. I want to read that one more time, okay? Listen, put it in the context of the United States of America. All this disaster has come on us, yet we have not appeased the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities, our sins, and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all He has done, but we have not obeyed Him. So, he says that righteousness belongs to God. Daniel acknowledges the shame of his people and the disloyalty that they've had towards God. I should have bold made this whole thing bold. This passage that I just read heavily contrasts the attitude that Christians have towards sin today. When most people come up to me for prayer, they say, I am just drowning in shame. I have so much guilt and shame. There's so much shame and ministers get up and they say, we're going to rebuke shame. No shame, no guilt. Now, look, here's the thing. We're dealing with the sneeze and we have not dealt with the infection. If we were more focused on the eradication of sin and not just the eradication of shame, there would be no shame. Does that make sense? If we focused more on dealing with the sin of mankind, it's the sin that results in the shame. Or it's the shame that results from the sin is what I mean to say. And so what we keep focusing on is we're so busy about removing shame when we should be focused on removing sin. We wouldn't live in shame and guilt so much if we lived righteously. Does that mean? I'm not trying to be. But we're so focused on our feelings that we forget that we're not living the way God wants us to. And so a lot of the insecurities and the doubts and the issues that we deal with are from unresolved sin. But we don't like to call people out. We don't like to say that we need to change. But there's this merciful God that had been rebelled against. And Daniel recites the history of the rebellion. He says this rebellion has been going on forever. And he sent teachers and he sent leaders and he sent people who, who said we have to change for centuries and centuries and centuries, and we haven't. God sent Moses, he sent Jeremiah, he sent David and Solomon, and he sent all these people, and they received a word from God, and they wrote this word down, and they taught their people, and the people nodded and looked, and then they went and did whatever they wanted to do. And they've rebelled against him. And instead of hearing the word of God and seeing the trials and the, uh, the tribulations that the, their forefathers had gone through, instead of that aligning them with God, they continued to rebel. They continued to take God for granted. And what they misunderstood is they didn't think that there would be any consequences for their actions. We still live like this today. If we choose to live in opposition to God, we cannot be surprised when there are consequences 
for those actions. In the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, in the book of Deuteronomy, he says this in chapter 28. He says that God is glad to make you prosper, and He's also glad to destroy you. Now, you don't need to misinterpret that. It doesn't mean that God gets happy when He destroys people. What that means is He has the power to make you successful, and He also has the power to just completely knock you out. He has the power to do either one. And it's kind of up to us if we decide to follow Him or not follow Him. That's what decides our fate. And so we need to not misunderstand God. We don't follow Christ because we're afraid of hell. That's not why we follow Christ. We don't go to church. Our New Year's resolution shouldn't be, I don't want to go to hell, right? That shouldn't be our New Year's resolution. It should be to have a closer connection with Christ. We don't go to heaven for pearly gates and gold streets. We go to heaven for Jesus. And passages like Deuteronomy 28 are so important because it shows us what life and what eternity will be like in the absence of God. It will be desolate. And now non-believers say, Corey, I have a lot of non-believing friends. Corey, how can you serve a God that would damn people to hell for eternity? How can you do that? And I said, well, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. God has invited us, listen, God has invited us to be a part of perfect light. And any of you physicists in the room, if there are any, any of you physicists in the room know that light and darkness cannot occupy the same space. It's impossible. And so if God is the perfect light and we are invited to adopt the perfect light inside of us, if we neglect the perfect light, the only other option is dark. That's it. So it's not that God gets a kick out of sending people to hell. We have perfect light that we're invited to be a part of. And if we don't do that, the only other option is utter darkness. That's it. And so we need to understand that God is merciful, He's benevolent, He's loving, and He's invited all people to be a part of the light. And so at this point in the prayer, Daniel, he's on his face. Listen, by this point, he hasn't asked God for anything. It's just been confession. He's weeping for his people. He's brokenhearted for his people. And he's brokenhearted because all his people have been through they're still not waking up. After all the sexually transmitted diseases, after all, after all the debt and after all of the corruption and after all of the bloodshed and after all of the warfare and after all these things, God's people still don't wake up. They still don't wake up. And again, don't we live in similar times today? Look at how many chances God has given us. We talked about 2001 on, on 9-11 and 2001. Those of you old enough to remember that, it's hard to believe that was 15 years ago, right? I remember going to my English class that day, Dr. Conley, who was the head of the English department. They had canceled classes, and Dr. Conley and I, this is before I was a Christian, sat in his office, and I saw him weep because 3,000 people just died in the buildings in the Twin Towers. And I remember for about three months, we were a unified people, right? For three months, we loved our country, we loved God, we loved our president for about three months. And then we went right back to our ways. Football started again, right? TV was back on. They started rebuilding a little bit, right? We just didn't care as much anymore. And what we tend to do is we do exactly the opposite of what Paul said in Romans. We start adopting the patterns of the world instead of letting our mind be renewed by the Holy Spirit. We go right back to the patterns of the world. We go right back to the secular, secular things that we do. And so Daniel didn't complain. If you haven't noticed about this prayer, he's weeping because of all the brokenness of his people, but he doesn't complain. He didn't understand all of God's ways, 
And he affirmed, he said, God, you're righteous. We're the ones that are messed up. We're the ones that deserve judgment because we failed to follow you. And this is where the mind of the Christian, you and I, if you're a believer in here, our thinking should be wrapped around the idea and the belief that you and I are owed nothing. Nothing. The fact that you can breathe right now is a gracious gift from God. The fact that we have blood coursing through our veins, the fact that we could get up and come to this house of worship today is unbelievable grace. We are owed nothing. And there is such an entitlement. I'm not talking about the outside world. I'm talking about within Christianity. There is such an entitlement, such an entitlement, and it is antithetical to the ways of God. So again, don't misunderstand me though. Jesus Christ came to save. It says in John 3.17, everyone talks about John 3.16. I like John 3.17. It says that he came not to condemn, but to save us from condemnation. That analogy, he came not to throw you in darkness. He came to offer you pure light. And those that accept the pure light live forever. But when we spurn mercy, when we neglect or when we reject the light, the only other option is judgment. If we say no to salvation from condemnation, the only other option is condemnation. And Jesus came to save us from that. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we have sinned and we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Show your favor to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city called by your name. For we are not, this is so important, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your sake, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. What he does is he talks about the time. He gets into the history a little bit. And he essentially says, God, if it wasn't for you, we would have never been set free. When the Jews left Egypt, right? Even if you're not a believer in here, you know this story. When the Jews left Egypt, they approached the Red Sea. Moses stuck his staff in the Red Sea. It split open and all of the Jews traveled across on dry land, right? And that's how they escaped their enemy. So he brings that up. It was by the power of God that they escaped their enemy and that they found the promised land. Now, the cross in the New Testament serves the same purpose as the parting of the Red Sea did in the Old Testament. The cross opens up a pathway, a channel for us to escape our enemies and for us to find salvation. And how often we forget, how often we forget the power of what the cross has done. And in, in Daniel's time, the Jewish people were exceptionally famous. They were famous because the entire world knew about the Red Sea incident. 
They knew that the Egyptians were following after the Jews and that the Red Sea was parted. The whole entire world had heard about this. This is before social media. This is before the internet that they heard about all these things. But what had happened, this is so familiar, what had happened is several generations had passed. What happened was, is the generation that had to fight for their faith had kids and then they had kids. And then they had kids. And by the time several generations were removed, by the time a generation had come up that never had to fight for their faith, they didn't appreciate their faith. And again, don't we have a tendency to forget the greatness of God that has happened in the past? Do any of you guys journal? You don't have to raise your hand or anything. You should. That whole book that Josh and I read was essentially my journals. It was things that I wrote over the years and going back and reading those things and being like, God, we had 37 people at church this week and no one gave a dime. Don't know what's up with that, right? And you'd write these things down and you go back and read it and you see how God would miraculously come through and how things would happen. And what it does is it builds up a reputation between you and the Lord. And it starts to show you that, wow, God does come through. It's not always the way I, think, I, I thought it was going to happen or when it was going to happen, but He always came through. And sometimes it's important that we document these things and we go back and read those things. And the Jewish people had those things documented, but they didn't go back and read them. They didn't go back and read the Word of God. They didn't remember what God had done in the past. And so these once great people, listen, these once great people of God were now ridiculed. Once upon a time, the reputation of the Jews and God Himself and Daniel's time was great. Everyone knew about the God of the Jews. Everyone knew about the stories of the Jews. But now, not only were the people of God ridiculed and made fun of, God Himself was now ridiculed and made fun of. And what happened is, is when the Babylonians came in and they conquered Jerusalem, the reason why God let that happen was to wake them up. The reason why God let their cities be knocked down was to wake the people of God up. That happened, and it didn't work. And so now the world was looking at the Jewish people saying, where is your God now? After the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now look, let's, let's, let's stretch it a little bit. In the New Testament, you and I are the temple. People are the temple, not buildings, right? People. Right now, all around the world, the temple of God is being desolated. They're sawing the heads off the people of God all around the world. And it should break our heart. And right now the world is looking and they're saying, where is the Christian God? If the Christian God is real, why doesn't he show up and stop these atrocities? Why hasn't he done that? And so we have to step back and, and, and we've like lost a connection. It doesn't even bother us so much that the temple of God is being desolated. It's being desecrated all the time. And people are saying, well, where's the Christian God? Where's the Christian God? And this broke Daniel's heart. Daniel only really cared about two things. And quite frankly, these are the only two things we should really care about. He cared about the reputation of God, and he cared about the reputation of God's people. That's what Daniel cared about. What people think of my God and what people think of God's representatives. I don't know if you guys know this or not. We are the visible ambassadors for an invisible God. That's what we are. We're the visible ambassadors for an invisible God. And so now at this point in the story, the prayer, the petitions start to flow out of Daniel. Now he's asking questions. Now he's, he's starting to wonder. He wants the city and God's people to be restored. He wants God's reputation 
to be restored. And it bothers him greatly that people thought poorly of God's people and of God. And he said, God, I want your reputation and I want your, your people's reputation to be restored, not for us, but for you. That's why he kept saying, for your name's sake, for your sake, for your sake. And Daniel pleads with God to show favor to his people so they can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and establish a new testimony of the one true God. Now again, the temple is different. We're the temple. So if we put this in the light of the New Testament, Daniel just wanted people to be built back up so the reputation of God can be built back up. Daniel understood, listen, that the acts of God's people are instrumental in creating God's reputation on earth. How you treat your neighbor defines the reputation of God on earth. How you treat those who hate you. Now look, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to love our God no matter how nice we are. In fact, Jesus said some people will hate you simply because you're a Christian. That's what will happen. There will be some people that are just flat out evil. But our reputation as the church should be good. We should do good deeds, not for us. We don't go on mission trips so we can get selfies with black kids, right? That's not why we do that. We don't feed the homeless so we can brag about it. We don't hang out with people of other faiths so we can Facebook about it. That's not what we do. We do those things for the glory of the Father, not for the glory of the church, not for the glory of the individual, but so people will look at our good deeds and say, they serve a good God. That's why we do good things, not to brag on us, but to boast on Him for His glory for His honor. And ultimately, we need to know that apart from God's righteousness, we're nothing. Daniel makes it clear, probably one of the most important verses in the entire lesson today. He says, we are presenting all this to you, not based on anything we've done, but because you're gracious. It's all of this is brought to you. We're asking this, not because we have anything to bring to the table, but God, because you're the table. We're not approaching you because we have anything to offer to the relationship. You're everything. We're coming because we know that you're benevolent. We're coming because we know that you're abundantly compassionate. And Daniel knew that God's timetable was perfect. And he knew that there is nothing good apart from God. Daniel knew this. So when we approach God, we need to understand that we have nothing to offer. It is all Him. And so Daniel chapter 9, I don't know if you guys know this or not, God is totally cool with you ripping off the Bible. Daniel chapter 9 is a chapter of the Bible that we should rip off. I don't know if you know this as well. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus said, pray like this, the Lord's Prayer, He never intended for us to recite the prayer. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer, but that's not what He intended. He said, pray like this. Use this as a template. Use this as a model for how you should pray all the time. Now, Daniel essentially does the same thing. He gives us a template. We shouldn't pray exactly what Daniel prays. We're not Jewish people living in Persian captivity. We shouldn't pray exactly like that. But we should use that template and communicate appreciation for God's grace and for God's patience. But it seems like to me, and I'm not trying to be just like Debbie Downer today, but it seems like to me that the awe and the reverence that Daniel approaches God in this chapter is a complete contrast to the flippancy 
that we approach the Spirit of God with now. I've said it before, we've kind of made Jesus into this hippie that just like kind of wants to hang out and says that everyone's okay. And God is the judge that sits on the throne. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times in my house that I make a cup of green tea and I sit in my little room in the front of my house and I talk to the Lord and I enjoy that. And I think my relationship with God needs to be that. But there also needs to be time when I'm face down on the carpet, broken hearted, that my people have rebelled against God. And the flippancy that modern-day Christianity approaches Jesus is extremely disturbing. The fact is this, and again, I'm not trying to be a downer, guys. We're starting a new year, and we need to start it off on the right foot. The fact is this, is that when you go back and read chapter 9, you see three things that should break the heart of the believer. Daniel shows them really, really well. What broke his heart is that his hometown was in ruins, is that his hometown was in ruins. The second thing that broke his heart is that God's people had a bad reputation. The reputation of God was not good with non-believers. And the other thing that broke his heart was the love he had for his brothers and sisters. Now look, even before we feed and clothe people outside of these walls, the people in this room, the people that come to this church, there should never be a hungry family in the church. There should never be people that go without the basic necessities of life within the church. It should break, our city should break our heart. That's why the the church should be more into social justice. That's why we support organizations like Portico, the one that we showed the video for. This church gives tens of thousands of dollars to Portico so we can help uh, show new, new mothers ultrasounds so hopefully they won't have abortions. All the ugly stuff you hear about Planned Parenthood, organizations like Portico do the exact opposite. They lovingly bring single moms in and help them and make sure that they have all the tools they need to be the kind of parents that they need to be. The church needs to step up and do more of those things. The church needs to be involved in its city. The city should look visibly different. The crime rates of cities with growing churches should go down. We should be more involved in social justice. We should also be concerned about each other. And we also need to be concerned about what people of other faiths or atheists or agnostics think about us to the best of our abilities. But to do that, to do those three things, we have to start rebuilding, listen, rebuilding a broken temple. And the temple is not a building, the temple is a people. So in order to rebuild a broken people, the first thing that we need to do and you're here now, I'm I'm preaching to the choir right now. The first thing we need to do is we need to be pro-church. Not just this church, the church. The assembling of people together to worship and to hear the Word of God. Whenever I hear Christians say, I love Jesus and hate the church, it's the same thing as me saying, I love you and I hate your wife. Jesus and the church can never be divorced. And we see this in Hebrews 10.25, when the author of Hebrews, which by the way, we're going to do the book of Hebrews next year, what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 is the author says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some of you are doing. The same problem that exists now or existed back then. People are saying, I love Jesus, don't need the church. The author of Hebrews said, no, no, that's crazy. Don't forsake the assembling. 
I've always noticed there's a correlation between people moving away from God and not attending church. When people are in church consistently, their relationship with God most of the time is better. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Though we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we also need to be honest about the brokenness and the failures of the church. We've put way too many billions of dollars in buildings and not that amount of money in people. And that's a problem. And that's something we need to do something about. That's something that this church, I hope, we always have a finger on the pulse of benevolence, giving that money away, helping charities, helping nonprofits, helping families that are struggling. struggling. We need to acknowledge the things that we've done wrong. When the whole gay marriage thing passed, right, the, whole, the church was up in arms. Oh my gosh, the world's going to end. And I had to step back and say, guys, the church gave up on the nuclear family in the 1960s. We screwed up decades ago. We need to go back. Instead of you focusing on legislation, start discipling your young men and women. Start teaching what true masculinity is and true femininity is biblically. Start teaching young women Proverbs and how that they are to grow up and, and to be strong women of faith and to be leaders and teach your young men how to be men. And then we won't have to deal with the repercussions of legislation later on. We also need to learn to edify each other and not crucify each other. Can I let you guys in on a secret? It's not going to be much of a secret after this, but... And now listen, some of you guys are going to get upset about this. And if you get upset about this, maybe this is just not a good church for you to be in. I started thinking about this line, that we need to edify the church not crucify the church. Now, there are times when I point out what I believe to be false prophets. Um, I, when I talked about Benny Hinn last week, I made a snide remark about him. I don't feel bad about making a snide remark about an individual that steals $40 million from, from vulnerable people. I just don't feel bad about that. There are some times when we need to call out false prophets, people that teach things contradictory to this book, and people who make a buttload of money off people who are struggling, right? We need to call those jokers out. I don't feel bad about that. But a couple of weeks ago, I was praying about the church, Murfreesboro's church, and I was pulling away from the parking lot, and I got this crazy idea that I never thought would work. Now, here's where you guys are going to, some of you guys are going to be very upset at me for this. But there are three churches in our county that are bigger than us, World Outreach, New Vision, and North Boulevard Church of Christ. I have a decent relationship with all, all three of those pastors. Those are the only three churches bigger than us in this town. And I said, hey, I'm going to get a hold of those three pastors. I'm going to ask them to come just at random times in the next year and tell us all the great things their churches do in our community. I'm going to give it a shot, right? So didn't think it, was work, it would work. I got a hold of all of them, and all three of them committed to do that next year. So I'm going to bring those guys in. And I know, I know that that's weird for some of you. I know that. But look, as, as the kingdom of God draws closer, we've got to get over some of those hurts. We've got to get over some of those frustrations and tensions, and we've got to link arms with the other churches around us to push the kingdom of God forward. We've got to, right? Okay, good. And look, I'll just be honest, that's awkward for me to do that, but I've got to put myself aside, and we've got to advance the kingdom of God. We must also live above reproach, which is what Philippians 2.15 says. That we are to live in such a way to where people look at us that it's very, very hard to accuse us. We also need to live above the appearance of evil. Any of you who've done ministry for any length of time in here know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Any of you who've lived any length of time, we have to live in such a way to where we avoid the very appearance of evil. So if you're coming out of a bar at three o'clock in the morning and I see you and then you get mad at me that I would accuse you of doing something you shouldn't, you haven't really lived in a way that avoids the appearance of evil. We have a rule at this church, and you guys are going to think I'm crazy legalistic, but when me and any of the staff in this church drive around town, there's never just one man and one woman because it can look wrong. Even if we're totally innocent, my wife doesn't worry about Sarah or Carla or, or, or Andy or Amber or any other women, the women that work here, but just to make sure there's no confusion, we go extra steps to make sure we avoid the very appearance of evil the very appearance of it. Look, we're trying to rebuild the temple, right? We're trying to rebuild our reputation and the reputation of God to non-believers. So it means that we must invest wisely. We are the temple. This is going to be so simple. You're going to be so not impressed with this last slide. We are the temple. And if we are to restore the temple, it's going to take some simple life changes. Guys, you got to pray. You got to pray. You have to whittle out time, just like people whittle out time for sporting events, just like people whittle out time for that favorite TV show, just like people whittle out time, listen, just like people whittle out time to eat, you need to whittle out time to pray. He is the bread of life. If there's anything you need to consume, it's time with the Father. You have got to whittle out time to pray. You've got to do it. You've also got to study. Young people in this room, you need to know what the Word says about sexuality. You need to know what the Word says about finances. You need to know what the Word says about relationships and sex and gender. and all. You need to know those things because you're going to be confronted with those things. You need to study the Word of God. Those of you who pray and study, you need to step up and lead. Those of you who have a good relationship with God, it's time for you to disciple. It's time for you to mentor. Some of you need to give more time, energy, and money. I've gotten over the uncomfortableness of talking about money. If we're going to give to Portico, someone has to give to the church. And the same people who complain about the church not doing more for the city are typically the same ones that never contribute to the church. And that's a problem. If we're going to change the world, we've got to let go of that money. It's not so I can get a big raise It's not so I can upgrade from my 2002 escape to a 2003 escape. It's not so we can do that. (laughs) Now you guys know what I drive, right? So um, it's not so we can live high on the horse. It's so we can give more of it away. It's so we can do more for our city. It all boils down to this. Listen, a glass can only spill what it contains. And if the Holy Spirit is not poured into us, we cannot pour the Holy Spirit out. If God is not poured into us intentionally, strategically, consistently, God cannot work through us. God cannot work through us. I wish, I wish, I wish I could take all of you and look you in the eyes and I wish you could understand the potential, the potential and the calling that some of you have. I wish I could grab some of you by your heads and shake you and say, do you know how awesome you could be for the kingdom of God if you would just make some simple life changes? If you would just pray, if you would just study, if you would just step up. I know it's scary to lead. It is. But some of you guys just need to take a shot at it. Dave Ashworth shouldn't have to beg people to be life group leaders. 
We should have people opening up their homes. We should have people... We've we got a lot of good plans for 2016, and we're going to have a lot of good opportunities for people just to step up. You don't have to know everything. You just have to be willing. You just have to be a willing vessel. And if you fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit, eventually that cup's going to run over, and it's going to affect your neighbors. It's going to affect your coworkers. It's going to affect your universities and your schools. It's going to affect everything around you. Now, I'm a pessimist in some regards. I think the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But you know what lesson that's going to teach us? Is that our joy and our contentment is not based on our circumstances, but is based on the Holy Spirit within us. And the church is going to continue to advance. The kingdom of God is going to continue to advance. I love you guys so much. 2015 was rough. Amen. Amen. And 2016 is not going to be easy, but I just feel it. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're going to see great things happen in 2016. And it's going to happen through some of you. Can I pray with you? Father in heaven, God, I just... uh, Whoever, everyone who can hear my voice right now, Father, I pray that as we take communion here in a minute, God, I pray that, uh, not to be weird, I pray that you give them a glimpse of their future. I pray, God, that you show them the potential that they have. I pray that you show them the, the, the impact they can have on the people around them. I pray, God, that you give them a hunger. I pray, God, that you give them courage. I pray, God, that it's not just a New Year's resolution that they get closer to you, but it's a lifestyle change, God, that it's forever. God, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your son. We thank you, God, for, for, for everything you've done for us, God. We thank you for your benevolence. Lord, we have acted wickedly. We have been rebellious. And Father, for that, we say we're sorry. God, we pray for Murfreesboro. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just here, but all around the world. And we pray, God, that we can live in such a way to where your reputation is restored to the best of our ability, God. Lord, we love you, Jesus. God, just let us have a fire in our belly, God. Lord, let your Holy Spirit fill us up, Lord. We love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's communion on the right and left, guys. Everyone's welcome to take that. And there is a prayer team up here. Uh, If anyone needs prayer for anything, thank you guys so much.